0: You know, it's been such an incredible series, hasn't it? And um, there's so much more to uncover and discover in Revelation. So without further ado, I'm going to invite my good friend John up to read us from chapters 4 and 5.
1: Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the Spirit, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow." Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder, and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the One who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The heir to David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represented the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed the people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne, and of the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever and the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb.
0: Wow. Wow. What an incredible piece of scripture. I don't know if many of you managed to close your eyes and just have some of those images and some of those things come into your mind as they were read out. But this this almost is... a it's too hard to talk about all this. So we're going to have a go. We're going to have a go today and look at what God is saying to us. And I want to remind you that we're reading the book of Revelation, which is an apocalyptic style of writing in the Bible. And the word apocalypse means unveiling. That's what Revelation is. It's an unveiling, a drawing back the curtain so we can see more of our, more see more clearly See heaven more clearly, see ourselves more clearly, see Jesus more clearly. So let's get ready for some more Revelation today. Are you with me? Good. I'm excited. Here we go. So in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we had some brilliant stuff from Rich, Wilson, and Luke as they just unpacked the big picture, some of the imagery, symbolism in Revelation. Do go back on the YouTube and check out those if you missed them. And we were invited to look at Jesus, and we we're invited to rediscover our first love. Once again, much of the teaching we're drawing from through this series is taken from Daryl Johnson's excellent book called Discipleship on the Edge. Do recommend it. So we'll be unpacking four and five, which John so amazingly read out there, which are all about, if you haven't seen the theme, worship. It's all about worship. The writer John is actually writing this on the prison island of Patmos. And you say, well, why is he there? Well, because he refused to worship Caesar the ruler of the Roman Empire, the one that conquered Israel. And John and other Christians of the day would have to wrestle with daily the challenge of, should they respect Caesar, this ruler over them? Perhaps, maybe respecting leaders. Did they have to pay taxes to Caesar? Okay, they they did that. Jesus affirmed that, didn't he? In the gospels, pay your taxes to the rulers. Should they pray for Caesar? Yeah, definitely. Jesus said, pray for those in leadership, whether they're good, bad, or ugly. That's a challenge, isn't it, in our world? But worship Caesar as Lord and God? No. That's a red line right there. For John, that would mean just throwing away all the revelation, all the truth of who he knows he's called to be, which is a follower of Jesus. Why would he worship a man putting himself in the place of God, when he knows the man who is fully God and fully man, he should worship him. He worships Jesus. So John's sent off to Patmos. He's a political troublemaker and um, he's exiled. But here he is on the Lord's Day, that we read earlier in the chapters, and he's in the spirit and he is making a choice, and he is choosing to worship in that place. Often we can read that and think, well, of course John would worship. He's one of the, you know, he's in the Bible. It must be easy for him. He is away from family, friends, purpose, and he's stuck in this place in prison. But he chooses to worship, chooses to lift up his soul and worship. And as I read this, that struck me first is that I just wonder if we can learn from him, from John. John. Can we choose to worship in the middle of difficult circumstances? Whether they're personal, whether they're national, whether they're global, and there's plenty of those. When we look and see Jesus and worship him, it changes our perspective on reality. And that's what we're going to learn for John. We might discover, like John, that actually we're joining in with some worship that's been going on all the time around us. In fact, there's always been going on in heaven, that there is worship of the true king. And that is what John is being invited to step into. So every time we hear the word open in Revelation, it's important. It separates the drama of Revelation out into five separate acts. And we've had Act 1, that's chapters 1, 2, and 3, and this is Act 2. So um, the first thing that we read is that, that there is something that is open. And we're going to just look at that. So it's that there is an open door. There is a door, rather, standing open in heaven. And I've got my props. These are doors, in case you're wondering what they are. Um, so just help, though, if that's helpful reference for you as we go on. So we're jumping into the second act of this amazing bit of Scripture. And we're going to walk through the Scriptures today, and we're going to notice what we notice and see what's going on and see how that applies to us. So let me read on. Chapter 1, verse Chapter 4, verse 1, I looked, says John, and I saw, right, we've not got very far in this, but let's just pause on that. (laughs) It's a command. Look is a command. And it's the second most frequent command in Revelation. The most frequent that you'll find is do not be afraid. And if I was seeing all those images, I would need reassurance. But you see, when we are asked to not be afraid, it enables us to look. Sometimes we're afraid, aren't we, of what we might see. But when we get over fear, we can then look and see what God wants to show us. So wonder what we might need to stop looking at today and turn to look at Jesus. Maybe take a moment to consider what's going on in your life right now. Is it busyness? Is it fear? Worry? Anxiety? Self-absorption? other people's problems. I just encourage you, turn from those and look at Jesus today. And John sees a door, a door into heaven. It is open. The door to heaven open and it won't close because of what Jesus did on the cross. He has made a way for us back to the Father. There is a door open for you and me today. So with John, we want to go through that door and discover more. And just remind ourselves, our name is Open Heaven Church. And let's pay attention to what we see, where the word open is said so much. And as a church, we're living with the prophetic word that was given back in May last year of open heavens for open, open, heavens for open doors. And we've got some of the rest of that prophetic word written on these doors behind us. So I just want to say, Jesus, what are you showing us? What are the open doors that you are giving to us into this town, into the people that we know what are the doors we're called to knock on? what are the doors into people's hearts in this season? So heaven is an amazing place and it feels far away, but it's not it's another dimension of reality, but it is close at hand it's all around us and ordinarily we don't get to see touch or or feel it, but it is close and John. He's getting a chance to see what's happening in heaven. He hears a voice, Come up here. I love that. Pretty clear. Get involved, John. And that's the voice of Jesus inviting him to see. And he says he's in the spirit, as he has been through this whole vision. And he has another command to look, and he sees a throne. Now, John's not the first person to see a throne in the Bible. Um, He's using familiar language that the Jewish people will have heard through the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel, a lesser-known prophet prophet called Micaiah in Kings 22. And they all saw a throne. And Isaiah in Isaiah 6, who sees um, the same creatures, the very same creatures named here in Revelation 4, declaring the same worship, holy, holy, holy. So John sees this throne with someone sitting on it. And John uses the phrase again and again through the scripture, he who sits on the throne, emphasizing the truth that Jesus is staying on the throne. His rule and his authority are not going to fail. In a world where kings and kingdoms fall and fail all the time, we're invited to not be afraid, rather to look, to see the throne with someone sitting on it, sitting there, unmovable. Unmovable. The, sitting, the one sitting on the throne, says John, was as brilliant as gemstones like Jasper and carnelian. Later, it says in verse 5, from the throne proceed flashes of lightning. This is an awesome sight. And when you come near God, he sees pure light. Actually, when Ezekiel saw the throne, he said its brilliance was like glowing metal. And when Daniel saw the throne, he said it was like flaming fire. And the word "like" is used because we just no way to describe it all, but it gives us some sense of the quality and the quantity of light that's coming out of the throne, and the one who sits there. Later on, or earlier on in Psalms 104, it talks about God being covering Himself with light as a garment. I love that. And Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and says, "Just at the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed." And the only almighty God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he alone can never die and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. Whenever and wherever God makes himself known, there is light. What light needs to shine in your life today? Does the light of God need to shine today for you? We see the lamp stands as well before the throne. And there are seven and that number represents completeness I should have tested you on that because you had that in week one. But that means completeness. So God's fire, his purity, his love, his creativity, they're complete. And then John sees a rainbow. I love this. Around the throne. And that is a sign of God's mercy and his justice. Justice to deal with human sin as it deserves. And mercy to deal with humanity as it does not deserve. So in front of the throne, we see this sea of glass or crystal. And I didn't know what that meant. And actually, it refers to the power of chaos, interesting, but not an actual body of water. And chaos is always threatening to overwhelm creation. But here it is in front of the throne of God, and it's calm, subdued, shining with beauty and order. Often we cry out to God when we're in chaotic situations, don't we? We want to invite his peace. And that's where this peace comes from—the one who sits on the throne. Perhaps that's you right now, and you're like, "It feels like chaos in my heart, in my spirit, in my life." I just want you to cry out to Jesus today. He's the one who sits on the throne. We can invite and receive His peace in your chaos. And then we've got the elders. I always—I just didn't know what these elders were about. And it's lovely as I've done some research to see who are they. Well, there's 24 elders sat there are in a semicircle, which is actually how they would sit in a Sanhedrin, a Jewish Sanhedrin. And they are, they're wearing white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And it's a picture here of a few things. Firstly, that God has chosen to set up thrones around his to invite others to partner with him in his kingdom. I love that. God chooses to partner with us. And those 12, what do they represent? Well, there's 24. The first 12 represent those that came before Jesus the 12 tribes of Israel. And the second 12 represent the people of God who came after Jesus, the 12 disciples. So just a little context of what these 24 are about. And then we see one of the weirdest, I know as a teenager, I used to read this stuff again and again and go, what on earth is this about? But we see some four living creatures that look kind of weird around the throne. Now, they represent creation, and they look like a lion, like a calf, like a man, and like an eagle. And they've all got wings, and they're sort of around the throne. And what it represents is creation gathered round the one on the throne. All of creation worshiping day and night, night and day, continuously. You see, creation knows it has a creator. And creation knows this creator is worthy of worship. How many of us look out on creation and and it draws us into worship? I love this, that creation is right there around the throne. And Jesus said on Palm Sunday back in scriptures, he says, "If, if people stop praising, the rocks will cry out instead. Luke 19 verse 40, creation knows God and creation worships. And so they're worshiping with these words, aren't they? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The Almighty One who was and is to come over and over again, never getting tired. Yeah, I've lost a page. One second. There it is on the other side. So John sees that the 24 elders see creation worshipping and inspire themselves. And I love this act of humility and truth where they throw their crowns down before the throne and join in saying, Worthy are you, Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and because of you, because of your will, they exist and were created. Jesus is worthy. And when the door to heaven is open, we discover the truth that the universe isn't an accident. That we're not an accident. The universe and we were created by the creator. Therefore, we have meaning and the universe has meaning. We're alive because the one on the throne wills us to be alive. If any of us are feeling like at a loss as to how this all fits together in the world, it's great to know that, isn't it? That God wills us to be here. And we come now to this really dramatic moment in the drama. Um, it's powerful what happens. John wrote it out so powerfully. John sees a scroll of him in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And there's writing on the inside and outside, and it's sealed with seven seals. Again, seven, the sign of completeness. And this scroll is actually the scroll of history. It contains the plan and the course of history. It shows how God is going to establish his kingdom on earth. John sees this angel, this mighty angel, asking in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who can do it? Who's got the wisdom to understand the flow of history? Who has the power to guide history? Who can lead history to its destiny? No one, John learns. No one in heaven, no one on the earth, no one under the earth. No one could open the scroll. And John's just destroyed by this and he weeps. And then the moment comes, and John says that one of the 24 elders says, Stop weeping. Look. Again, there's that command. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so he can open the scroll at its seven seals. Now, these titles, Lion of Judah, Root of David, are Messianic Old Testament titles. The lion has come. The lion's overcome. The lion can open the scroll. Yes, you say. And then comes a moment And he says, he saw, what did he see? A gigantic mighty lion rippling with muscles, with bared teeth, just roaring and levering everything in its path. That's kind of what you want, isn't it? That's the Hollywood moment. Here comes the lion. Where's this ferocious lion that we're reading about? He's overcome. Where's the lion? No. It's not what happens, is it? And I saw between the throne, Revelation 5, 6 or a better translation, in the middle of the throne, meaning in the middle of the Almighty who sits on the throne, we see this. A lamb. A lamb who sits on the throne as if slain. And it's a lamb with seven horns. The horns are a symbol of strength. So seven horns means complete strength. And seven eyes, and eyes are the symbol of insight or wisdom. So seven eyes means complete strength. Perfect sight and insight and wisdom. So what he's saying is this creature who seems totally weak and even dying and dead, powerless, a lamb slain, is in fact powerful and completely wise. Completely powerful and completely wise. So this imagery is is mind-bending, isn't it? But this is the truth. The lion does not overcome as a lion. The lion overcomes by becoming a lamb. And giving himself sacrificially for the world. This is the gospel. And John heard all of heaven break out in celebration. Twenty-four elders sing a new song. Four living creatures sing a new song, and everything in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea sings a new song. And the old elders fall down in adoration, just as the shepherds and the magi did when Mary's son. The Lamb of God was born into our world. Okay, there's lots in this, isn't it? So we're just gonna draw out three key things that are implications for us here and now. And I'm just gonna just take our time to go through these and then we will respond together um, as we think on this. First, it is safe to go through the door and approach the throne of the universe. In the middle, in the very center of the one who sits on the throne is the lamb, the perfect, sufficient sacrifice for sin, for my sin, for your sin, for the world's sin. It doesn't matter how much or how badly we have sinned or how much sin has ruined our lives because it does or how unbearable the guilt and the shame feel on us. It's safe to approach the throne of the universe. That's good news because Jesus has died for you. That's what he's done for us. He's made a way. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. Man, I love that. I hold on to that. I cling to that scripture. That gives me the confidence to move towards Jesus So there's grace because the lamb was slain and he sits in the middle of the throne. I love this hymn and I can't remember who did it, but I've got the words here and it is powerful. I'm not going to sing it, you'll be pleased to know, but I'm just going to read this out. Let this wash over you. This is a great summary of this part of Revelation. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who lives forever and pleads for me. My name is written on his hands, my name is written on his heart, for I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me to depart. Behold, in there the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood." He's done well, hasn't he, to capture the majesty of that moment, of the lamb that was slain on the throne. And this lamb is worthy of you to open the scroll, to break its seals because you were slain, and you purchased for God men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation. That is the whole world. No one is excluded. And the hymn says this, My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God with Christ my Savior and my God. So open heaven. It is safe to approach the throne of the universe just as you are because Jesus the Lamb was slain for you. That's number one. You can approach the throne. Number two, this is the secret of history and it's sacrificial love. Jesus wins through sacrificial love. In the very center of sacrificial love. Self giving, self emptying love. God does not win by being a lion. And lions are arrogant, aren't they? Ferocious, lazy a bit as well in the sun, and maybe quite greedy. And those characteristics don't do us any good. They'll dig us deeper into sin. The lion wins by becoming a sacrificial lamb. Through what looks like weakness and foolishness, he wins. On the cross, he wins. Thank you. I knew I'd get a slight amen there somewhere. Jesus wins. And we see this in Matthew when he writes in his gospel about the moment that Jesus dies on the cross. You might remember it. The curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The rocks split and creation cries out and the graves are opened up. In that moment that he dies, the graves are opened. Yeah, because in that moment when he dies, he defeats death. And then death has to let the captives free. C.S. Lewis, I know John loves to quote, so we'll get a little C.S. Lewis in there for you, John. He he tries to help us understand this kind of tension between the lion and the lamb in the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan, the lion, doesn't win as a lion. Aslan breaks the spell of the witch when he lies helpless, broken, shaved, and bound on the stone table and lets evil do to him what it always wants to do. And in the moment that he dies, the deeper magic as Aslan calls it, kicks in, and death begins to work backward. I love that rich language that he brings. Sacrificial love, as weak and foolish as it seems, overcomes. Nothing else does. This is the heart of God's way in the world, self-giving, self-emptying love. The whole of history of God with creation and humanity flows out of the heart of the Lamb in the center of the one who sits on the throne, slain from the foundation of the world, says the scripture. The secret history from the beginning on all the way to the end is sacrificial love. Good, so that's point two, sacrificial love. Point three, we are now reigning with the lamb who is overcome. This is incredible. Revelation 5.10 says, and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. I love that. It's a revelation, isn't it? Jesus is reigning now. It's not off in the future. It's now. The lamb has overcome and he reigns now. And so do we. We are his sons and daughters. And it's why the 24 thrones of the elders are there in the throne room. God invites us in. He wants to partner with us for kingdom work. That's a revelation. It changes our perspective, doesn't it, on who we are. Do you realize right now that you rule and reign with him? That's true. Let that sink in. You rule and reign with Jesus. And we do it, how? In the same way that he does it, with sacrificial love. See, that love moves history. Usually, the people with great power, the lions, as it were, they get to uh, the credit for shaping history. But I, I would say, encounter, they're not the real history makers. Those that move history forward are like the lamb who alone can open the scroll and gives themselves away, who give themselves away in love and sacrificial service. And I, I just wanted to say this that in this life, many of us may not get the recognition for the way that we serve our communities, our families, and those whom we work with. But scripture tells us that we, when we live with sacrificial love, we build his kingdom. Verse 8, John says, the elders fall before the lamb. And he sees that they each have gold bowls full of incense, which John discovers are the prayers for God's people. So we understand that prayer is an important part of how we reign with him. We reign with Jesus when we join him in his prayers. Scripture tells us that he intercedes from the throne. So we know Jesus is praying for us, and we get to pray with him. I don't know if you ever thought about it like that. Often we think it's one-way traffic, but Jesus is praying for us, and we're praying to him. So just to tell you, this Wednesday, we're launching a six-week prayer focus over Lent. We're going to be using the prayer room, which is now up in the old studio room, for six weeks, and you can book in using a prayer app that we'll be emailing around tomorrow, opening that space up for prayer over the whole of this Lent period, so we get a chance to practice praying with Jesus. We get to change history when we join Jesus, and we get to pray the Lamb taught us, which is, our Father in heaven, you're on the throne. Cause your name to be honoured on earth as it is in heaven. Cause your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Cause your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's amazing. And then we hear, don't we, in the scripture, a new song. Songs and hymns and choruses being sung in worship with the session that's already going on. Worthy are you because you created all things. Worthy are you because you're slain. Worthy. You know, back in Isaiah, when he got a revelation of the throne, hundreds of years before John he cried these words, woe is me, because he saw God and he became aware of his sin. And John cries out, worthy are you, no longer woe is me, but worthy are you. And these choruses make a powerful political statement, because actually the phrase, of worthy are you to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing were the same words that Caesar had sung to him. He took those words. That was what the people of the Roman Empire had to sing to Caesar. But here we're using those words to glorify the true king. So that's amazing that that is is what's happening here politically as well. They're controversial. They're political. It's a statement that worship is being directed to the true king, the lamb who's slain. So we've moved from woe is me to worthy are you. So whenever we enter into worship, we're joining in with something that's already happening. It's like when you know if you've arrived at a concert or a gig late, and it's over halfway through, you don't come in and say, I've just arrived, guys, could you just look at me for a minute and start again? No, there's already a vibe, there's a flow, the music's going, the atmosphere's there, and there's someone amazing in the center of it that you've come to see. And worship is like that. We get to join in with what's already happening through history. So the question to ask after you've been in a worship time is not, what did I get out of that? Because we're not at the center. The question to ask is, did I enter in? Did I enter into the worship of the Lamb? Did I enter in and join in with what's already going on around the throne? Did I see Jesus revealed center stage on the throne? Is that what happened? Did I join in with creation, the four living creatures, and all of the elders, all the people of God? And did I want to fall down before the throne with the Lamb sitting on it? So... We're just going to do a quick recap and we're going to respond. John realized we're not alone in worship. Worship of God is taking place all around us, all the time. It does not begin or end with us. Whenever we stop and worship, we enter into the worship that's already in progress. There is a door that is open to heaven and it's safe to go through. In fact, heaven is flowing through that door to us. Number three, the secret of history is that God wins through sacrificial love. And we're called to model that. And we reign with Jesus, lastly, who's sitting on the throne, living sacrificially and praying us as he taught. So I want to extend an invitation to you right now as we finish. Behold, I set before you an open door. Heaven is open here right now, everybody. And we're going to share in communion in our response, an opportunity to sit at his table to remember Jesus' sacrificial love us. He gave his body and his blood on the cross so that we might be forgiven and we can enter into relationship with him. So we're going to worship, we're going to do communion and we're going to respond to the lamb, the lamb that was slain, the one who's worthy, who understands the flow of history, the one who's opened heaven to us.